Good morning, good morning. If you will, take your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the foyer. If you have a device, obviously you have access to the Bible plus much more from it. Um, but we'll be in Acts 18 this morning. Get my device loaded here. Um, continuing through the book of Acts, um, for those of you who have been here with us, um, we've been working verse by verse through the book of Acts, um, I guess over the last four to six months. Um, we'll continue that. We're in Acts 18 today into chapter 19. Uh, we'll continue working uh, through the book in, in the weeks to come. Um, excited about the passage before us today. Um, the, the book of Acts is, a, is an incredible encouragement to us um, as a church. It has been to the church for thousands of years, but it, it holds a special encouragement for us as, as a newly formed body of believers, um, as a body of believers who are less than two years into this uh, endeavor uh, of being a church and loving a community and spreading the gospel um, this book has much encouragement for us, um, and I think this passage today has much encouragement for us. Uh, I'm going to start, I'm going to read the passage, um, give, us, give us a little, little warm-up as to where we're going, we'll pray, and then we'll dive in um, to what the Word has for us today. Um, I'm going to start, we're going to focus most of our attention today on Acts 18.24, and then chapter 19 um, through verse 10. Um, but before reading that, I want to back up a little bit in chapter 18 to verses 9 and 10 um, and start there. Uh, I think you could easily say Acts 18, 9 and 10 uh, lays the groundwork for the rest of the book. Uh, if, if verses 9 and 10 are not true, uh, quite honestly, we're wasting our time. Paul's wasting his time. Paul's life was a waste. We're wasting our time. Uh, we might as well just shut the doors and go find something else to do on Sunday mornings and for the rest of our lives. Um, so verses 9 and 10 say this. It says, Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. So in, in Acts 18, 9 and 10, God is declaring his sovereignty. He's declaring his power over all that Paul does, over all the places that Paul goes, over all the people that Paul will see, all the people that, God, that he will interact with. God is declaring his sovereignty over all of those things. And then we come to our passage for today. It'll be Acts 18, starting in verse 24. I'm going to start, start with a discussion of Apollos, move into a discussion about the disciples of John the Baptist, and finish with a discussion of Paul and his ministry in Ephesus. So let's start in verse 24 together. It says, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was powerful in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught the things about Jesus accurately, although he knew only John's baptism. We'll discuss more about this discussion of John's baptism versus the baptism of Christ. Uh, it's not as big of a nuanced difference as you would think it is. Uh, but nonetheless, Paul calls it out here um, for the integrity of the scripture. So um, don't let that take, take your attention off of what all is happening with Apollos. We'll discuss that more. Apollos goes to the synagogue. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him home and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When, we, when he wanted to cross over to Achaia, his brothers wrote to the disciples urging them to welcome him. 
After he arrived, he greatly helped those who he had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Kind of closes out chapter 18. Moving into verses 19, we, we switch back over to Paul. Um, and Paul is in, um, in coming into Ephesus as well. Apollos has, Apollos has moved on from Ephesus to Corinth. Um, and Paul is now in Ephesus himself. Scriptures say this. It says, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism were you baptized with, he asked them. With John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other languages and to prophesy. Now there were about 12 men in all. Then, then he, being Paul, entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, engaging in discussions and trying to persuade them about the things of the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them and met separately with the disciples, conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrrhenius, this went on for two years, so that all the inhabitants of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the message about the Lord. Before we dive into unpacking this passage, I just want to take a moment to pray. Uh, I'll pray for you guys. I ask that you guys pray for me um, as we discuss the, the, the great and glorious word and the great and glorious work of our Savior. Join me in prayer. Father, we we, we come before you thankful for your, your message, uh, thankful for your scriptures, thankful for your word, uh, thankful that you saw fit uh, some millennia ago to, to provide a way for us to commune with you. And Father, we, we ask as, you, as we approach your scriptures and your word and your truth, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our hearts, that you would calm our minds, that you would set aside the, the distractions of our time and of our schedule and of our concerns and of our worries, and that you would allow us to boldly approach the throne of grace. Father, we, we ask that we would be, be a people who, uh, who seek you above all things, who seek our affections to pursue you and to align with you and to align with your work in our lives. Father, we, we pray that you be faithful to your word. We pray that, that above all things today that you receive honor and glory through our worship of you, through the preaching of your word, through the giving of our resources to the one who owns them all. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. So, two, two things, anytime, anytime I fill this pulpit, there's always two questions I want to ask. One is, what does the text say? So, plainly, what's the story? What's going on in the passage? What's happening? We want to answer that, questions for that, that question first. The second question we want to answer is, what does the text mean? Um, and that can be a very different thing. Um, there's been many heresies throughout church history 
at the endeavor of just trying to exhort the people of God with what the text says apart from what the text actually means. Now, I'll confess this passage is fairly straightforward. It would be hard to twist this in a heretical manner, um, but we do want to dive into what's actually happening here. Uh, what, what is driving the ministry of Paul? What's driving the ministry of Apollos? What's this discussion about the, the baptism of John? What's actually going on um, as we talk through these things? So let's start with number one. What does the text say? Um, so it's a pretty straightforward passage. This is not, it's not a parable. Um, it's simply a narrative of what's going on in Paul's ministry and in the life of Apollos. Um, so nothing here is hard to understand with the possible caveat of this whole baptism of John discussion. Um, so straightforward, we start with Apollos. Apollos um, comes to, to Ephesus. We know he's an Alexandrian. We know he's a Jew. Um, but he's been instructed in the way of redemption and of repentance, and he begins to eloquently present the gospel to the people of Ephesus. We then get this beautiful little caveat into the workings of the body. Um, Priscilla and Aquila meet Apollos, hear his ministry, and they, they kind of take him under their wing, and they begin to instruct him. They begin to instruct him in the things that, that he doesn't know about the scriptures and about the redemption of Christ, um, and that's where we see the first mention of this baptism of John. Um, and we'll discuss that more as, as we move through the passage. Um, Apollos then, then leaves Ephesus, goes to Achaia um, or Corinth um, to continue his ministry there. That closes out chapter 18. We come to chapter 19. Our attention focuses back on Paul. Um, Paul is, is in Ephesus as well. Um, he comes, and we get this kind of fuller expose on the, the idea of John's baptism. Paul, as he enters Ephesus, meets these 12 men, or the scriptures say, or about 12, um, who knew the scriptures, who, who knew the repentance um, that they were being called to, but had never heard of Jesus Christ. Um, so they'd been baptized by John, been baptized in the message of John, uh, but it had been, not been baptized into Christ and had... To, to receive the Holy Spirit and carry on their ministry there. Paul then goes into the synagogue. He teaches in the synagogue for a period of time, um, encounters a lot of opposition there. Um, so then he, he continues his ministry of the word at the house of Tyrrhenius, um, where he teaches for two years. Um, and it says that the entire region came to know of God through Paul's ministry, um, Paul's ministry there. So yet again, straightforward. Um, a lot of reciting of facts, and you know, this, these people were here, these people were there, they were ministering, there were interactions. Um, this is not the, you know, if we were building a, a TV show based on the book of Acts, this would not be the high point of the TV melodrama, right? Like, this is the, this is context building, um, this is just a reciting of facts more than anything, but I do think there are some good things there for us to mine as we seek to unpack what does this text actually mean. So let's turn our attention there. Um, first, I, I want to have a full, fuller discussion on this baptism of John discussion um, that Luke leads us through as he's recounting the events in, in Ephesus. Um, there, there's a differing of opinion amongst the broader Christian community about what is meant here. Um, there, there are certain denominations, certain sects of Christianity that see here the need for two separate baptisms. They see the need for a baptism of John 
and a baptism of Christ. Um, some even see a third, and that would be the baptism in the Spirit. Um, we believe, as, as Baptists, as Southern Baptists, um, as, as evangelicals, quite frankly, that, that there is a single baptism. Um, that what, what, is, what is happening here when, when Luke mentions the baptism of John versus the baptism of Christ is not a call for us as modern-day believers to need two baptisms, but is instead a, a correction, is a, is, was, was Paul's way with the twelve of pointing out simply what they did not know. So you, you have these 12 men, they're ministering, Apollos was ministering, absent from a knowledge of the work of Christ, if that makes sense. So you, you have these men who had heard John, they had heard what John was prophesying, they knew what John was preaching, it was a gospel of repentance for the one who is to come. But these people had never met the one who was to come. So you have the, these, this kind of transition period in the book of Acts where you have some who were faithfully ministering under the ministry of John, under the prophecies of John, but they had not heard that Christ had come, that Christ had died, Christ had resurrected, Christ had arose again and had won victory ultimately for them. So you had this, this contingent of people in the church who were passionate, who were ministering, who were doing the work, but they simply had not heard that Christ had come. That come Christ had come, he had lived a perfect life, he had died. So you have this sect that have been baptized under the ministry of John, and you see Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos, and then Paul with these 12 men instructing them in the way of Christ. They then are baptized under Jesus Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, and go back into their ministry. Given that in 2022, here, we know about, we know about the coming of Christ. We know the life that he lived, we know the death he died, we know the sacrifice he gave, and when we baptize particularly people in this church, that's the first question we ask is, is, do you know Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ your treasure? If the answer is yes, then please join us in baptism. Please join us in co-laboring together. That's not the case with Apollos. That was not the case with the 12 that Paul encounters. There was no Christ as their treasure because they didn't even know Christ existed. So this is not a, a correction of heresy. This is not a a Paul bringing the hammer down on these 12 men. This is a simple informing of what has happened. Hey, you're doing great work in the ministry. You're, you're doing the work that John told you about and commissioned you to do. But there's more. And that more is the person of Jesus Christ. He has come. He has lived a perfect life. He has died a painful death. He has sacrificed on your behalf. And now be baptized into that and continue your ministry. So to kind of summarize that discussion, we here at, at Haynes Creek, as Southern Baptists, as Baptists, as evangelicals globally, do not see this passage as a commandment to us for two baptisms. When we read the Great Commission, and we're told to therefore go and make disciples, baptizing in the, them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do not see a need for two baptisms. We believe there is a baptism in the person of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit indwells that person, and then that person is free to go and fill, fulfill the Great Commission, love God, and do all that he's called them to do. So, if you ever get the question, do I need to be baptized twice? The answer is no. Wow. Audience participation is not our strong suit here. Hey, it's great. I'll tell you that much.
<clears throat> All right. I will say this, just in fairness, there are there are believers who who I love dearly and who do great work for the kingdom who do not agree with that interpretation of this passage. Um, they see a need particularly for a baptism in Christ and then a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, it is a difference of opinion in interpreting this passage. Those are not bad people. They are not harmful people. They are people that have done great work for the sake of the kingdom. So I say that to you. Believe fervently in a baptism in Jesus Christ. But do not go pick a fight with someone who's doing good work for the sake of the gospel because they also see a need for a baptism in the spirit. Um, those are people who are co-laboring, who are working, who are working hard for the sake of the gospel. Have vigorous conversation with them, um, but do not fight with them. It is not worth it at the end of the day. We have many more issues that we should undertake um, and pursue. Okay, so now that we got kind of the heady stuff out of the way, uh, let's move on to the more fun stuff. Um, so as we're interpreting what this text means for us, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this interaction between Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila in chapter 18. Um, and then I want to spend a large portion of our time thinking about Paul's ministry in Ephesus, particularly this, this two years of ministry in the house of Tyrrhenius. And I want us to think about what's driving that ministry. What's driving Paul to stay in one place for two years to persevere in his ministry of the word, to teach the gospel, what's driving that? What's driving Apollos to, to take his skills, which were evidently great, and use them for the sake of the gospel and for the furtherance of the kingdom? So let's start with Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila. Um, so as a reminder, Apollos comes into Ephesus. He teaches, very eloquent, wins many to, to the faith. Um, and then you, we have this little little verse in the middle where Priscilla and Aquila go to him. They, they bring him into their lives, and they instruct him in what he does not yet know about the gospel. So you have an incredibly effective minister of the word being ministered to by these two, two servants. I mean, truly, everything we know about Priscilla and Aquila, they were incredible servants of God, incredible servants of the church. And we see further evidence of that here. It's, it's interesting the way that... that that Luke, Luke writes it, is in verse 26. It says, after Priscilla and Aquila heard him, him being Apollos, they took him home. So we have this beautiful picture of hospitality, that this man who was, who was weary, who's traveling, who Priscilla and Aquila have heard, they bring, bring him into their home and explain the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers wrote to the disciples urging them to welcome him after he arrived, he greatly helped those who, held, who had believed through grace. So it's this beautiful picture of biblical community, right? You have, you have the megaphone in a lot of ways. I mean, you have the Apollos. I mean, this is the, 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 the best, one of the best deliverers of the gospel in, in, in ancient Rome that we can see. I mean, he, he's eloquent. He's well-spoken. People like to listen to him. He has influence. And he could, use, he could use these skills for any number of things, but he's decided to use them for the sake of the gospel. So you have the mouthpiece coming into Ephesus, and then you have Priscilla and Aquila who, under, who see him, who hear him, who recognize the gift, who see the skill, but also realize there are things that he doesn't know and doesn't understand about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So instead of standing in the back and yelling at Apollos about all the things he doesn't know, Priscilla and Aquila bring Apollos into his home. They instruct him in love. 
they equip him, and then we see the results of the ministry. We see, we see Apollos going on to Achaia, helping those there. We see him vigorously refuting the Jews in public and demonstrating through the scripture, scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. So what's beautiful about this picture is what we, what we don't see here, right? We don't see Apollos telling Priscilla and Aquila, that's real sweet. You people are real nice, but this is what I do. Shut up and go away. We also don't see Priscilla and Aquila standing in the back undermining the ministry of Apollos. We see these, these two, two, two parts of the body, very different functions, very different purposes, equal in value before God, coming together for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. I think this is instructive to us. That as we do the things that we are called to do as a body of Christ, as we, as we take our gifts and we use them in the way that God has, has called us to use them, that we are all pulling in the same direction. There, there is no one is better than the other or one is more important than the other. They are all to work in harmony and in peace with one another. But that requires us to be humble. That requires us to remember that that this is not about us, that this, this church, that this community, that this, this kingdom, this furtherance of the gospel is not about us. It doesn't, quite frankly, it doesn't matter how we feel about it. It doesn't matter whether we feel important. None of that matters. What matters is the gospel of grace going forward. So I encourage us, I encourage us to have these conversations to encourage one another for the sake of the ministry and the sake of the gospel. But we have to do so in love and we have to do so with humility. Now, the, the obvious question is, well, where does that humility come from? Great question. We'll get there. Um, I, I did want to give just a, a, a beautiful picture of how this works out. It, it was an encouragement to me, and I pray that it's an encouragement to you. But um, Sarah, my wife, and I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago um, we're, we're working through a, an international adoption, and we were in Birmingham, Alabama to get some training. Um, and one of the men who leads that training is a, a former professor at Southern Seminary. Um, he's been a pastor for 20-plus years. Um, Sarah and I laugh. We don't really know what his job is other than he's, like, the pastor in residence. Like, his job is literally to make people smile and happy and love the Lord. Like, that's legitimately what his job is. Um, and so he was doing some of the training. And he told this story um, when he was a professor, professor at Southern. He was walking through his first, first adoption. They were adopting from Ukraine. Um, you know, this was 20 years ago. Um, and there was another professor at Southern who was also doing the same thing. He was, you know, six months ahead of them in the process. Um, and there was this day where, where Rick is this guy's name. He, you know, he came, came to the seminary. He passed the other gentleman in the hall. Um, and the other gentleman asked, well, how are you doing? Like, how's the adoption going? Um, you know, Rick was kind of, they were, they were in a tough spot with their, their adoption. There's just, there was a lot of corruption in Ukraine. Things were moving slowly. There were setback after setback after setback after setback. Um, and he was just discouraged, quite frankly. Uh, you know, it was just like, is this ever going to happen? Like, we, 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 <laughs> we have a child. You know, he is ours. He is in a place that we cannot get to him. And there was just a lot of discouragement. And so he's recounting this to his, to his friend, who's also a professor, and two things that you have to know to really give this context. One, Rick's about six, four, six, five, 280, 290. Like, he's a big fella. The guy he's talking to is 
maybe 5'9", maybe 120 pounds, wet. And so you have this mammoth of a man complaining to this little man about all the things that are going wrong with his adoption. And the way Rick recounts it, he says, you know, I was expecting a hug, right? Like, oh, woe is me. All of this stuff is going wrong. He said he didn't give him a hug. He said he got up on his tiptoes, pointed his finger in his face, and he said, God's going to teach you so much about himself through this adoption. Slapped him on the shoulder and walked off. So I tell you that to say, that is a lot of times what Christian love looks like. We acknowledge the sorrow. We acknowledge the pain. But then we encourage one another to say, yeah, it, it, it's tough. It really sucks. Um, this is not fun. We grieve with those who grieve. We rejoice with those who rejoice. But then we encourage one another that we're all doing this for a greater purpose. I want to turn our attention now to a discussion of, of these four characters, really. Apollos, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila. Um, we, we, we see throughout the book of Acts and throughout most of the New Testament the ministry of Paul. Um, undoubtedly the most fruitful ministry uh, ever known to Christendom in the person of Paul. We see, we see with Apollos an incredible ministry of the word. We see with Priscilla and Aquila repeatedly an incredible ministry of encouragement and perseverance and care for the people of God. So kind of the question hanging over this passage and over the entire book of Acts is what's driving all of this, right? Like what, what drives Paul to essentially become a nomad, to give up his Roman citizenship, to give up his, his, his heritage, to give up his, his status, to go travel around making tents, preaching the word of God, being persecuted, what drives that? What drives Apollos, a man of great gifting, of great eloquence, to, to take those skills and instead of profiting from them, using them for the sake of the kingdom? What, what keeps Priscilla and Aquila going? The, the ministry of care and the ministry of encouragement is not an easy one. There's often days of discouragement. There's often days of of just toil and hard work, but what keeps them going? Ultimately, right, ultimately we know, if we read verse, verse six, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19, this is when Paul baptizes the 12 in the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes about them. They begin to speak in other languages and to prophesy we know ultimately what's driving this work right is the Holy Spirit. Like apart from the Holy Spirit, Paul doesn't make a decision to leave behind his Roman citizenship and his Jewish heritage and his safe life to go be persecuted at making tents and being a nomad. We know that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, Apollos doesn't take his gifting and use it in, for the furtherance of the kingdom instead of his own profit. We know that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that Priscilla and Aquila do not continue in the work. They give over to discouragement, to despair, to, to feeling insignificant, unimportant, unvalued. They give themselves over to that, and it stops. That is, that is absolutely the truth. But I think the struggle that we have as believers and as a church in, in 2022 is what does that mean? 
Like, how does that work? How does the Holy Spirit work in our lives to produce this type of activity, to produce this type of fruitful ministry, to produce this encouragement, to produce this working together? How does that happen? I'm glad you asked. I want to spend a little time looking specifically at Paul. Uh, we, we have the, the incredible gift of a lot of Paul's knowledge of God, thinkings on God, meditations on God being documented for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I want to spend some time looking at what Paul says about this question. Like, how is the Holy Spirit working in Paul's life to encourage him, to move him forward, to give him power, might, grace, for all that comes before him. We'll be bouncing around a little bit. You can bear with me. But the first kind of ministry we see in Paul's life from the Holy Spirit is Paul having this recognition that this world is not his home. So you see that in Philippians 3. I'll read that passage in a second. But Paul is clearly living in a different reality than everyone else. Because anyone in this reality does not renounce their Roman citizenship, give up their Jewish heritage, give up their religious standing for the sake of what? For the sake of what? Some rambling bunch of lunatics who go around talking about a man who died on a bloody cross. And the reason he does it is Paul realizes this world is not his home. This is what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, For I have often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul is making a comparison. You have these people who are given over to themselves, or given over to their lusts, their passions, the things that they want. And Paul says, they're focused on earthly things, but our, including his, citizenship is in heaven. And he eagerly waits for a Savior. Secondly, how's the, how's the ministry of the Holy Spirit working itself out in Paul's life to drive all of that activity? Philippians 1, Paul says this. He says, for me... Living is Christ, and dying is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of me your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Yet again, Paul's, Paul's not living in this world. Paul's living in a different reality than the rest of the people around him, from the non-believers around him. He, he literally, Paul lives his life each and every day as if to say, if I'm living, it is for the ministry of Christ and then for your good. You are being the churches he is ministering to. And if I die, it is gain. And the messages from Paul... I don't really care which one it is. I would rather be with Christ because that is the best. But if I'm here, I will continue ministering. And as Travis said last week, you can't persecute that person. Kill him? Great. 
I'm in the arms of my Savior. If you let me live, I'm going to continue ministering because my life is Christ. Third way, the Holy Spirit's manifesting himself in Paul's life. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists, lists all of the sufferings that he has been through. We'll read all of those. And then he ends with a, with a comment at that list, uh, at the end of that list, that, that gets to the very core of what the Holy Spirit is doing in Paul's life. So 2 Corinthians 6 says this. He says, but as Paul says, but as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything, by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardship, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the message of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness on the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying and look we live, as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So there, there's Paul's list of what ministry has been like for Paul. Sufferings, trials, tribulations, un, through love, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in times of suffering, in times of, of good, in times of want, possessing nothing but having all things. And then he says this to the church at Corinth. He says, we have spoken openly to you, Corinthians, our heart has been opened wide. You are not limited to us. Here's the key. But you are limited by your own affections. So what's the Holy Spirit doing in Paul's life? The Holy Spirit took Paul's affections, that desire for status, that desire for, for all things, that desire to be known, and he changed them. He changed Paul's affections. And what did it produce? The most fruitful ministry the world has ever known. Two more. Two more examples of how the Holy Spirit was working in Paul's life to drive, drive this ministry we see throughout the book of Acts, to drive this staying in Ephesus for two years for the sake of the city. This is also from Philippians 3. Paul says this. He says, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth, him being Christ, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but the one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. And this is what Paul says. You have all of this, these doings, all of these goings, all of these places, all of this ministry, all of this teaching, all of these tents that were made. Who wants one of Paul's tents? I know I do. You know, and what does Paul say? He says in verse 10, he says, my goal in all of this, in all the ministry and all the travels and all the sufferings, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So yet again, you have Paul who had the status, who had the citizenship, who had the path, who had the, everything that anyone could ever want, and he forsakes it all for the goal of Knowing God. One more. Ephesians 1. 
Paul, Paul's exhorting the church in Ephesus, ironically, the same passage that we're in this morning, um, same place anyway. Um, he's exhorting the, the church at Ephesus to consider their adoption, their inheritance, and the gift of the Holy Spirit they have received. And as he goes through his, his argument for why the church at Ephesus should be thankful for these things, he ends with the, the same phrase three times. Let me read little snippets for you. This is uh, in, in Ephesians 1. He says, For he, being God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Keep going. Verse 11 and 12. We have also received an inheritance from him. So we were adopted earlier in the passage. Now we've received an inheritance. Predestined according to the one according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who already had put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. So first part of the chapter, to the praise of his glorious grace. Middle of the chapter, might bring praise to his glory. End of the chapter, he says this, he is the down payment, being Christ, for our inheritance, for the redemption of the possession, to the praise of his glory. So what is Paul doing, or what is the Holy Spirit doing in Paul's life, and what is Paul teaching the church at Ephesus? That, that all of this, the knowing of God, the ministry, the work, is all for the praise of his glorious grace. So Paul is enraptured, enraptured with this. His life is being built simply to know God, to minister to people, and to to in so doing, bring praise to the glorious grace of God. So this brings another question that is a hard question for me to ask and a hard question for me to answer. If I, if I read Paul, if I, if I read the way that the Holy Spirit is working in Paul's life, I'll be honest with you, my life does not look like this. It does in times and in seasons and in, in, in moments. But I can't say with a clear conscience that my sole goal in life is to know him and the power of his resurrection. I can't, I can't say with a clear conscience that, that I seek to bring praise to the glorious grace of God. I can't say that that I, I want to minister in all the ways that Paul ministered in 2 Corinthians 6. I, I don't want to sign up for great endurance, afflictions, hardship, difficulties, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor camps. <laughs> I don't want to do those things. So where does that leave me? Where does that leave us? Uh, I, I think it's clear we don't lead day-to-day -day lives that look like Paul's life. Some of that's time, context, century, uh, not living under the, the, the captivity of the Roman Empire. Sure. But I think there's a harder question for us to, to answer there. And that's, that's how do we, how does our reality, how do we exchange our reality for the reality that Paul's living in? And I could sit here and I could tell you that you just need to go do it. Just go make it happen. Just go sell all your possessions, 
move to Somalia, walk around on the street, and hope that you can minister to people there. If you do that, I can guarantee you that list of things in 2 Corinthians 6 will be true of you. You will be beaten. You will suffer much. You will do all of those things. But it would all be for naught, right? Like That would be a waste of a life. So what's the difference? How do we, how do we get from the reality that we're living in to this reality of the way that the Holy Spirit is working in Paul's life? I think where, where Paul was exhorting the church in Ephesians 1 is the place to start. Paul, Paul talks repeatedly throughout his writings about the praise of God's glorious grace. Now, here's the thing. When we hear the word praise, for me, my mind immediately goes to worship service, giving of tithes, ministering to the poor, these types of things. Work, right? Like We're working out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. But then I run into a difficulty. We're, we're, we're called to do those things. We're called to praise God. But we're also called to, to be ministers of the gospel. We're called to fulfill the Great Commission, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So how is, how is this call to, to live to the praise of the glory of Christ and this call to, to, to minister, to disciple, how do those two things reconcile together. I think what's missing for me and probably what's missing for most of us is we have an incomplete understanding of what praise is. When Paul says to the praise of the glory of Christ, he, he's not talking about just showing up at church, worshiping God. He's talking about a whole life, like the way that you live. C.S. Lewis said this about praise, and I, I, I know he's right. Uh, I, I know Paul says the same thing, as, particularly as you read Paul and the rest of Philippians, but C.S. Lewis really put a point to praise. He said this. Let me give you some context on C.S. Lewis first. So, so C.S. Lewis really struggled with this idea of praising God. He thought that the idea of praising God meant that God was weak. He thought that it meant that God was a panderer looking for helpless affection. Those are his exact words. So we really struggled with how do we praise God in a meaningful way if all God wants is our helpless sayings. This is what he said. He said, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, had strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. So those are those just useless words. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So what is C.S. Lewis saying? He's saying praise is not just words. Praise is enjoyment. Praise, think about it this way. If we, whatever, you watch a good game, you find 
some great thing on your car, you read a book that you like, you see a movie that you like, and what do you do? Do you just say, I'm just going to stick that in my back pocket, and no, you tell people about it. You say, in casual conversation, you're trying to fill up time with small talk, what do you say, hey, I found this, saw this really cool thing, you should check it out. What I, what I put before us this morning is that we, we struggle to live the, Paul that life, the life that Paul lived. We struggle with evangelism and we struggle with discipleship because we truly don't enjoy God. There are other things that have our affections. What does Paul say to the church at Corinth? You are limited in your ministry because of where your affections lie. I think that's the truth for us. That's the truth for me. That's the truth for us as a church, is that if, if, we want, if we want to bring praise to the glorious grace of Christ, if we want to see this, this church go forward and minister in a meaningful way in this community, it's not done through action. Action's the outpouring of affections that enjoy God. So if we as individuals are struggling in any of those, any of those areas, we have to go back to our affections. That's where, that's where spiritual battles lie. What do we think about? What do we care about? What keeps us awake at night? What do we cry about? What do we think about all the time? What do we want to be? Where do we want to go? What dreams do we have? If those things are not pointed toward an enjoyment of God, we can be virtually assured that we won't have fruitful ministry in our lives. So, what then should we do? We, we realize that, that effective, effective ministry, effective praising of God, the effective glory of God in our lives comes down to our affections. How do we enjoy God? So how do we enjoy God? I'll give you some, some practical things to try. And I'll tell you this, this is a lifelong endeavor. Just ask Paul. <laughs> From one degree of glory to the next. You, you discover some small, tiny portion of the glory of God, and you treasure it, and you hold it, and you proclaim it, and you tell people about it. And then there's a new degree of glory. And then there's a new, there are endless degrees of glory. So things to do. I'm going to recommend some books to you. Read them. They will be invaluable to you as, as you seek to make God your delight. Um, the first two are by Pastor John Piper. The first one's Providence. It is a big book. Read all of it and read it again. Um, the second one is Desiring God. Uh, straight to the point. Well, what does it mean to desire God? How does God become our enjoyment so that the Holy Spirit continues to work in our life and drive ministry? Celebration of Discipline, another great book, Richard Foster, um, and then A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. If you need that list, come find me afterwards. I'll give it to you. If you don't have those books, I'll order them for you. If you need someone to hold you accountable to read them, find me. They are that helpful and that important. Second thing is prayer. For those of you who've been here for a while, if you think back a year and a half, two years ago, um, Pastor Tom preached a message on the power of prayer fueling ministry. Uh, 
I know for myself that I don't take this as seriously as I should. But I also know that a life without prayer is not a life that can enjoy God. So pray individually, pray together, pray as a family, pray as a church, be praying always. Worship, come, worship, sing, worship outside of these walls, worship in your homes, never stop. Always be worshiping, always have that fertile ground of appreciation, appreciation and thankfulness to God so that the Holy Spirit has fertile soil to continue working. Meditation, meditation on scripture is one of the most joyful tasks that we could ever undertake as human beings. Um, Richard Foster in Celebration of Discipline, one of the books I recommended, has some very practical ways to undertake meditation of scripture. I cannot commend it to you enough. Let, let the treasures of the word of God take root in your heart and produce fruit in your life. You will find unspeakable joy and peace in those, in those times and those meditations. A few things to, to kind of guide some early meditation for you. All of those elements of Paul's life that we discussed. Read those scriptures. Let those scriptures suck in, or soak in. Read Philippians. Read Ephesians. Read Galatians. Let them soak into your soul. Another, another source of meditation for encouragement is God's care and governance over all things, no matter how insignificant. Matthew, Matthew 10, Scripture says this, Therefore don't be afraid of them, since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent? But even the hairs on your head have been counted, so don't be afraid, therefore. You are worth more than the sparrows. If we let that reality soak into our lives, I mean, that, that, that pervades everything. If God cares for the sparrows and not one of them falls to the earth apart from, from his, his governance and his love and his care, how much more then does he care for us? No matter the trial, no matter the, the, pers the, the suffering, no matter what comes our way, God cares for us and knows us and he sees us in our pain. Three last kind of practical encouragements for us as we finish up this morning on how, how do we find enjoyment in God. We, we live lives in 2022 and myself, the worst amongst them, that are tremendously strained when it comes to our time. Life is always in a hurry. There's always something to do. You can find ways to, to fill your schedule at, at a moment's notice. But all of that hurry and all that hustle and bustle does not work to further our enjoyment of God. It's a drug. It distracts us. We can have a fuller conversation on, on ways to do that. Um, but consider your schedule. Is there a time in there to, to know God, to enjoy God, to meditate on his scriptures, to pray? Or is it so busy just hopping from one thing to the next to the next? As we kind of kind of 
close out this section of practical ways that we can begin to experience the enjoyment of God, I want to leave you with this, this encouragement. This is also from Philippians 3. Paul's encouraging the church at Philippi. He says this, he says, Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all who are mature should think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. And then he says this in verse 16. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Earlier, Paul even goes so far to say, there's this, 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 this mindset that should be true of you, church at Philippi, but if it is not, rest easy because God will grant it to you. And then he says in verse 16, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. So here's the, here's the good news for us. Good news for me. I, I, I don't have a full understanding of the mindset of Paul. I don't have a full enjoyment of who God is. But God is faithful. That, that I should live to the truth that he has given me and that he is faithful to continue to give me more truth, to give me more enjoyment of who he is. Church, we, we struggle, I struggle, to not be stoics. Do you understand what I mean? To not just pick myself up by the bootstraps, suffer through whatever I need to str- suffer through, and forget that that's not the life that God's calling me to. God's calling me to enjoy all of those sufferings, all of the trials and tribulations and labor that Paul went through was nothing to him because he knew the enjoyment of who God was. I'll finish with one more C.S. Lewis quote. He, it's, it's right after the one I read before um, in his meditation on the Psalms. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is a pointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. So, so you know, people in those, those early stages of love, they don't, you know, longingly look into each other's eyes because they feel like they have to. They're doing it because they're compelled to, because they're enjoying one another's company. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some, upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep it silent because the people you are with care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. Anyone ever been there before? You're on a drive, you come over a vista, there's a beautiful valley. You're taking, taking it in and, and realizing the beauty of God's creation and the person next to you is on Instagram looking at some meaningless pile of whatever. And it's just like, what, what are we doing here? The Scotch Catechism, Catechism, this is the Westminster Catechism he's referring to, says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these things are the same thing. Fully to enjoy God is to glorify him. And commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So church, as, as we seek to, to grow and to move forward and be healthy, as we seek to see fruit in our, in our personal lives, don't just take up those things and try to figure out how to do them. Don't focus on the output. Focus on the input. Focus on how do I enjoy God? 
how do I know God more? How do, how do I, I take the, the words of Paul in Philippians that my goal is to know God in the fullness of his sufferings? How do I take that and make that the input in my life so that the outputs may bear fruit? Let me pray for us, and then we'll move into communion. Father, we, we thank you that, that you constructed a world, that you constructed a gospel that is not intended for, for us to be miserable. God, we, we, we thank you that, that you made us, that you created us with affections, that you created us with cares and concerns and desires and dreams. God, you made us that way. Father, we, we confess that, that all too often we, we act as though those things do not exist in the kingdom of God. We act as though the, the, the ideal believer is, is one who toils on in joyless labor for the sake of some coming day. Father, we, we, we confess that that is often out of pride. Father, we humbly, humbly, humbly ask that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you teach us how to enjoy you, that you change our affections, that you change what we dream about, what we care about, where we spend our time, what we think about, whether you change those affections to be fully and completely fulfilled in you. Father, we, we pray that we have no greater joy than knowing you. Father, we, we then proclaim that in doing those things, we know, we know through the ministry of Paul, we know through the book of Acts, that the natural outcome of those things will be fruit. So, Father, we, we ask that, that as we, we go to take communion and as we go to to sing and to worship you again with song, then we be mindful of how can we enjoy you? How can we find our satisfaction in you? In your precious holy name we pray. Amen.